Hello, it is great to have you with us this morning. I do hope you're keeping well. Today, we're going to continue in our series in Philippians. Philippians is a book in the New Testament, actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was one of the people commissioned by Jesus to get the early church going. And it's actually a letter written from lockdown. Paul is in a form of lockdown at this time, a bit different from ours, because he's in prison, probably in Rome. But actually, there's some parallels in our situation, so it's a great letter for us to read right now and to ask, what can we learn from Paul's experience and the way he handled life in lockdown? And today, we're going to come to one of the most famous passages in this letter, to chapter 2, where Paul kind of brings to the surface or brings to the forefront a vital theme throughout this letter, the theme of unity. And what we're going to find is here, Paul makes a call for the church to be united through humble service towards one another. He says the true way to have unity in the church is to humbly serve each other, to put others first. And then he gives us the very, very best example that we can follow in order to do that and put that into practice ourselves. And I think the message of this passage is hugely relevant to us right now. At the moment, we are a church scattered. We're a church apart physically. But one of the ways we can still be united, even while apart physically, is to humbly serve one another in the way that Paul is talking about. We can be united as we serve each other. So Paul starts with this call to unity. And as he gives this kind of command to the church, he's actually thinking back to the previous paragraph, where in verse 27 of chapter 1, he said, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying that when you respond to the gospel the good news of what God's done in sending his son, there's a a certain way of life which is worthy of it, which kind of follows. When you've been saved, it changes how you live. And this here is one of the elements of what that life worthy of the gospel looks like. So let's pick up with the first few verses of chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul makes this call to the church, and he says, if they do it, they will complete his joy. He's actually already said right at the start of the lettering, his opening prayer, that he feels such joy and love and excitement about this church. And here he's saying, here's how to put the cherry on the cake, the thing which will make that joy as complete as it can be. And that is if they keep this command, a command to be united, to have the same mind, to be of one mind together. And that single command, that instruction, is kind of the thread that runs through the whole of the passage we're going to look at today. And he's called them to a unity which is actually already true of them. The the truth of their identity is that they are united. Every person who's a follower of Jesus is united in the church because all of us are put into Christ, and that unites us. All of us are filled with the same Holy Spirit. God himself comes to live inside of us, and we're united by that shared experience. And all of us are part of one body. We're all different, we look different, we do different things, we have different giftings, different personalities, but they all work together so we are the body of Christ. So actually our very identity, who we are, we are united. But now the command Paul is making is to say, this is who you are, now put it into action. You are united, now 
let that be seen in the way you act, in the way you interact with each other. But to do that by having the same mind, kind of thinking in the same way, viewing things in the same way, pulling together in the same direction. We might ask, well, that's a great command to make, but what does it actually look like to be of one mind as a church? Well, Paul kind of explains it a few verses later, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He's saying when making decisions, when taking actions, they shouldn't be motivated by selfish ambition by a kind of looking to one's own interests, one's own self, putting yourself first, thinking, well, what's good for me? This is actually the same word he's used earlier in the letter, when in verse 17 of chapter 1, he talked about the people preaching Christ for the wrong reasons, and he said they proclaim Christ out of rivalry. That word rivalry is the same word used here for selfish ambition. They weren't thinking about the glory of God and the reason the gospel needs to be preached. They were thinking about themselves, looking to their own interests. What could they get from it? Paul says, don't act out of selfish ambition. Don't act out of conceit, which is about pride, about kind of puffing ourselves up, making us the most important. Actually, he says, rather acting humility. If pride and conceit are about raising ourselves up, humility is about lowering ourselves down and putting others as more important. And in fact, that's kind of how Paul goes on to define it, to explain it. We're acting humility, and the way we do that, he says, is to count others more significant than ourselves. You see, selfish ambition will put ourselves at, at the most important and the most uh, at the top of the pecking order, whereas humility lowers ourselves and puts others first. And so Paul's command to the guys here in Philippi, when they're making decisions, when they're thinking things, when they're taking actions, is that their first thought shouldn't be about themselves and what they can get out of it but actually it should be about other people, counting others more significant. And verse 4 just kind of further helps us get our heads around this, helps uh, to understand this. Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What's really interesting here is notice he says, but also. So he doesn't say you should totally ignore your interests. They don't matter. They're not important. But he says actually the interests of others should be brought alongside your own. Or actually, maybe if we're counting others more significant than ourselves, our interests go a bit below. But there is a place for taking notice of our interests. But also, he says, we should be considering the interests of others, counting others more significant than ourselves. So here, this is Paul's command to the Philippians, but actually also this is God's command to us. This is uh, the, the way of Christian living. This is the manner of life worthy of the gospel, as Paul's talked about it earlier on. And for us in our day and age, to live in this kind of way is hugely, hugely countercultural. We live in a really individualistic culture. That means we focus on individuals as standalone beings who kind of fend for themselves. It's basically the idea of survival of the fittest. You look to your own interests, what you need, what's looking after yourself. You view the world through the lens of me and what I want, what I can get. We're living in individualistic culture. We also live in kind of like a right culture. A culture where we're very preoccupied by our rights, what we should get, what other people should give to us, what, what we deserve. And those two things you often particularly see coming out, actually, in seasons and times of difficulties. People kind of panic when difficulty hits and very much focus on themselves and their rights. On a really kind of simple, practical example, that's the kind of thing that leads to panic buying. Trouble hits and people panic, and an individualistic mindset goes, I must protect myself, I must get lots of stuff in, rather than thinking, 
how do we make sure that everyone is going to be able to get what they need at this time? But the command from Paul here directly challenges the kind of individualism and the right culture that we live in. Actually, Paul's command here is a call to kind of communalism, to thinking not of ourselves as individuals, but as part of a community, and being concerned for the needs and the welfare, the well-being of the community. It's recognizing that we are family as church. That's our identity, and now we've got to live that out. And also, it's a call to a responsibility culture. It's not about the rights we've got. Actually, it's about the responsibilities we have towards other people. The responsibility is to serve and love and to care for others. So the command that Paul makes here, that God makes to us, actually is a hugely, uh, a huge change of perspective for many of us living in the modern world. We're not asking, well, what can I get out of this? We're asking, well, what can I give? It's not about what good does this do to me? Actually, the key question is, what good can I do to others? And so if we live this way, we're going to kind of stick out because we're going against the, the flow of the tide of our culture. We're going to look different. We're going to act differently. But that shouldn't be a surprise. As Christians, we are called to be different, to stick out, to look different. Even later in this very chapter, Paul will say, as followers of Jesus, we're meant to be like lights shining in the darkness. And light is pretty obvious when it's in the darkness. Or actually, the next chapter, chapter 3, he'll say, we are citizens of a different kingdom. And if you're a citizen of somewhere, you live in that way. That means we should live differently to other people around us. And what might this call to uh, unity through humble service look for us right now in this very unusual, unique time we are living through? Well, I think right now is a time when it's really easy to focus on our own needs, our own safety, our own security. But I wonder what it would look like if actually rather than looking just to our own needs, we were a church who thought, how can I count others as more significant than myself? How can I consider the interests of others alongside my own interests? Maybe for you, it's asking questions like, well, who can I call every now and then over this season just to make sure they're doing okay, to give a bit of encouragement, a bit of companionship over the phone? Maybe if you're regularly meeting with people on video calls, it's, well, who can we draw into that group? Who can we invite to join us in that? Or maybe it's really practical. Who can I get some shopping for? Who can I contact and pick up some supplies for? I think it's about thinking about our time and our, our resources, the things God has given us. How do we steward them well, use them well to serve others? It might be that in this season you have lots more time than you'd usually have. How can you use that well? Or maybe you've not got more time so much, but there might be more flexibility with the way you can use your time. How can you use that well for the benefit of others. And so this sort of humility, looking to put others first, looking to care for others, will foster unity in the church. It's a way we can be united even while we are scattered. And Paul now turns to give uh, another encouragement towards this unity. He's still on this same kind of point, and I guess another way that can help to empower us or a, a tool to equip us to live out that unity he gives us an example, the ultimate example of humble service of others, the example of Jesus. He starts like this in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or actually, we could translate that as which, is also, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is a command to share the way of thinking of Jesus. He said, be of one mind. Well, what's that mind look like? It's the mind that was in Jesus. And he could be telling us this is yours in Christ because you're in Christ. You've been given it by him. 
Or we could be saying this was in Christ and that's the example for you to follow. I think the latter is probably the main focus of what Paul's saying here, but actually both of them are true anyway. And so he starts to tell us about Jesus and what Jesus did to help us understand what that mindset looks like. Picking up from verse 6, he talks about Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know, Jesus is God. In the form of, here actually means kind of possessing the true nature of. Jesus isn't just like God, he actually is God. He's not just in really close relationship with God, he actually himself is God. And what Paul is talking about here is the fact that for all eternity past, way before he was born in Bethlehem at the first Christmas, Jesus, the Son of God, was there with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, existing as God for all eternity. But even though he was God, even though he is God, Jesus didn't try to kind of grasp and keep on to and get hold of the, the honor and the glory he could rightfully deserve as God. He didn't insist on staying in heaven. Rather, Paul says, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. When Paul says he made himself nothing, he doesn't mean he stopped being God. He doesn't even mean he kind of laid aside or, or, or kind of got rid of some of his divine power, divine qualities. Notice he doesn't say he got rid of anything, but he did take something on. He took on the form of a servant. He took on humanity. He remained fully God, but he also became fully man. Why? Because he was looking to the interests of others, not only himself. Paul continues, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate way that Jesus exhibited and enacted the humility that Paul's been talking about was not just by leaving heaven, not just by taking on humanity, but by dying for humanity. He was obedient to the Father's plan. And not only did he die, but he allowed himself to be killed in the most brutal, horrible way. He allowed himself to die on a cross through crucifixion. In the ancient world, crucifixion was deemed the most horrific, most shameful form of death there could be. One Roman writer called Cicero said a good Roman person shouldn't even think about crucifixion. It shouldn't even kind of come into your mind because it was so horrible, so shameful. But in God's economy, things work in a surprising way. In God's economy, humiliation, um, humiliation and lowering, they lead actually to exaltation, to rising up. Paul finishes the story, therefore... God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' death was not a defeat. It was actually a victory. And he is the, the prime example of a, a pattern for how God works, that when we humble ourselves, God exalts. When we lower ourselves, God lifts up. God honors humility with exaltation. And actually, Paul is subtly saying another reason why we as followers of Jesus should humble ourselves in serving others is because God always honors that humility, and he will raise us up. And this is the ultimate example of that exaltation that God enacts. 
Jesus is raised from the dead. He ascends, he goes back up to be with God the Father, and he's given the name above every name, which isn't the name Jesus, it's God's personal name, the Lord or Yahweh. And all of this, actually, is alluding to something God said would happen in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 45, this whole thing of the name and everyone bowing down and confessing it is there right at the beginning, which will happen when God enacts his plan of salvation. And that's now what he's done in Jesus. So as we look to be united through humble service of one another, there is no better example that we can follow than the example of Jesus. And actually, the question we should ask is, well, not what would Jesus do? Do you remember we used to have those arm, those wristbands, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Actually, the question Paul's encouraging us to ask here is, what has Jesus done? And how do we follow the example that he has set in what he's done? Jesus' example sets the, the whole shape, the whole direction of Christian living. So we're living in a time of challenges, some incredible challenges, but also some incredible opportunities. One of the opportunities we have right now is to be united, even though we are physically scattered and apart. It's an opportunity to live as the family that we are because we've been adopted as God's children. And we can do that through humble service towards others. And I guess the the place where I want to leave it, or the challenge I want to leave you with today is, what does that look like in your life? What's that going to look like for you this week, for you to count others as more significant, to look at their interests alongside your own, to humbly serve that we might be united? I'd encourage you, ask the Holy Spirit what that is for you. But also, maybe you're listening in today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Maybe it's your first time with us. Maybe you've been uh, kind of logging into these live streams over the past few weeks. Don't miss the message of this passage for you. Jesus came in humble service for you because of his love for you, because of his desire to be in relationship with you. And his death was so that he could be a substitute for you, so he could take the penalty that you and I and all of us deserve for the fact we failed to truly, fully love God and follow him. His death was so that he could make a way for you and me, all of us, to be restored to relationship with God. And there's a day coming, Paul tells us about it here, when every knee will bow, every tongue confess, every one will realize who Jesus is and will worship him. But the invitation to us here and now is we can do that here and now in the present. And in doing that, we can enter into and enjoy a relationship with him. Maybe that's something you'd like to know more about. Maybe as you've been hearing about Jesus through different things, you might be engaging with us online. You think, oh, I want to know more. Get in touch with us so that we can point you to different things that might help you. We can involve you in different things we're doing. Just email us at hello at kings1066.org. Tell us a bit about yourself, what you'd be interested in knowing more about, and we'll link you up and find the best way of doing that. Let me just pray now and ask God to help us to put this into action. Father God, we thank you so much for this call to be united through humble service to one another. And we say we want to put that into action in our lives. We want to be a church who are united even while apart because we humbly serve each other. Jesus, we thank you so much for the example you set for us, that you are the the best, the perfect, the prime example of this humble service. Thank you that you came for us, you died for us, and we recognize that now you've been exalted because of that humbling of yourself. And Holy Spirit, we pray, please fill us. Please give us wisdom to know how to put this into action, and please empower us to do that, that we might be united, that we might humbly serve each other. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.